Alright, continuing tonight in the introduction to the first letter of John, we'll be in 1 John chapter 1 once again tonight, looking at verses 1 through 4. Just kind of a, a quick uh, review to get our minds back on track from last week. It is nearing the end of the first century. And John, the apostle, is an old man. And it's amazing to me that the bulk of John's writing ministry occurs all right towards the end of his life after all of the rest of the apostles have departed the earthly scene and moved on to be with Christ face to face. And we find John, one of the sons of thunder that Jesus called him, writing from the very cosmopolitan city of Ephesus about concern he has for the church. The, the, the first epistle of John is is not a formal letter doesn't even have a, doesn't even have an address at its beginning he knows the people he's writing to and the people that are receiving his writing know him besides that i mean <laughs> there might as well be a, a a 30 foot tall billboard with flashing marquee lights that says john wrote this just when you read the first four verses it is so similar and yet so profoundly nuanced, different uh, to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1 in verses 1 through 4, the Apostle writes, and he writes with a lot of purpose. He writes because the church is growing at an exponential level. And over the last 60 years or so, there has been, there has been growth by leaps and bounds. Satan has come against the kingdom of God on earth as hard as he knows how to come. But physical persecution alone has proved to not be sufficient to slow the church down. As a matter of fact, it's going to take about another 150 years before Satan really kind of figures this out and, and changes direction on the plan. But actually what physical persecution is doing is causing a purifying, and a strengthening of the church and a more rapid expanse of the gospel. Historically speaking, physical persecution didn't hinder the growth of the church in the first three centuries. It drove it like wildfire. But even now, he's still a ways from woeing that plan up, but even now, it is apparent to Satan that something more than physical persecution is necessary. The thing about the nature of the gospel, it is the miracle of God. It is life from death in Jesus Christ. And because of that, physical means will never be sufficient to stand against it. If you're going to really be able to get after the church, you're going to have to do it with some kind of heretical doctrine that undermines the efficacy of the message that is being taught, which is exactly what we see Satan doing at the end of the first century A.D. Now, specifically with what John's writing to is something called Gnosticism that we'll talk about more as we look through the book over the next several weeks and several months, but there's actually two different heresies that are going on at the same time that are moving in opposite directions, but intend to come to the same point, and that is an ineffectual gospel. The gospel is precious to John. As a matter of fact, we're going to do a little word work tonight, and I know it's a bit tedious, but it's necessary to do, I think, so that you can see how precious it is to this man. Because what he writes in his first letter is a defense, not of who Christ is, but of what Christ has done in his life and what Christ does in the life of his people. 
And so, much like Peter, he says, we've seen some crazy stuff, but we see something that's even more sure. And that is the prophetic word that was handed to us. John opens like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life was, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. Here we see the Apostle John begin to contend against this uprising of heretical teaching for the faith that he loves. You know, last week, right at the end, and we just mentioned in quick passing, and so I want to go back and look at it again tonight. I want to look at the similarities between the opening statements of John's first letter and of the Gospel of John, which were written not very far apart from each other time-wise. If you go back to, to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, and uh, think... Those of you that know me know that the Gospel of John has a particular place in my heart. Um, I think that if I was stranded on the proverbial desert island and I only got to choose one book out of the entirety of Scripture to have with me, that it would be this one. Um, I find it to be incredibly profound. And um, why wouldn't it be um, being about Christ? But and, and I love Matthew where we're at, but I, John's always just held a special spot for me. I think it's because writing it in his old age um, and knowing well uh, what had already been written, um, more than any other gospel, uh, John gives us a view into not just the who, what, when, where, but the how and why of what Jesus was doing as his ministry was unfolding, and and that's right up my alley, man. I, that's what I that's man. That's the part of the scripture I enjoy the most is when it explains to us not just what God is doing, but out of the goodness of His character, why and how He's doing it. I find that to be particularly precious. And so here we are in the Gospel of John. And I want you to notice the similarities. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Let's move down just for time's sake to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there is, you know, kind of the, 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 the big picture uh, in the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And it is the highest quality stuff. 
I mean, man, you got to put up, you got to put that up there with with you know Colossians chapter one and Romans chapter eight. You've got to put that up there with 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 Genesis chapter three. You, you've got to put it up there with Job chapter thirty-eight through forty. In my book, it's incredible stuff. It's incredible stuff, and so. And obviously, the audience that is reading the first epistle of John has read John's gospel. And here he is starting in a very similar fashion. And it's not just because he likes to hear himself speak. I think there is great joy to be had in proclaiming these truths over and over and over. But the way that John says it would instantly have been recognizable as being different from the way he said it the first time. And while it's, it's kind of bold there in the Greek, it comes through clearly in the English. When you read the opening verses of, of, of the epistle of John, immediately you know, even if you can't quite put your finger on why, that there is something different about what he's saying than what he says in the gospel. Now, there, there are lots of similarities. He's talking about the beginning, the word of life. The fact that that word came into the world. It was made manifest. It was made flesh. talks about it being effectual and giving the right to become the children of God. Here in the first epistle of John, he talks about the fact that it causes their fellowship to be with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, these topics... Line up one after the other after the other. We could even go into more, and yet there is something different. As a matter of fact, the, the opening lines to the first epistle of John seemed a little bit left-handed, if you will. A little bit awkward. And that's because they are. Now, we're very comfortable with the way that he speaks about Christ in the opening phrases of the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. Man, you can put that across the back wall if you want to, right? In the beginning was the Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. The reason, well... You can go down... I'm not going to do the really heavy Greek stuff tonight. I'll just, put it, I'll just say this. The reason 1 John seems left-handed is because we know that the thing that John heard and that he saw with his eyes and that he looked upon and touched with his hands concerning the word of life was the life made manifest and we know for a fact that is Jesus Christ. And we know that John is not shying away from it and John is not trying to write some kind of technical manual for understanding the doctrines of the gospel. After all, this guy is not the high theologian. He's the son of thunder. This is the guy that says was the apostle that was loved by Christ that reclined against his breast at the Last Supper. John is a guy that is going to speak to the emotive realities of the relationship that he has with his Lord. As a matter of fact, that's what he does throughout the entire letter. And this is what he's talking about the whole time is the way that he relates to Christ in Christ and out of that relationship relates to the other people that belong to Christ. The reason it feels funky is because we know he's talking about Jesus who is a he and yet he keeps using the neuter pronoun over and over and over. He doesn't talk about him. He talks about it. 
He doesn't talk about Him who was from the beginning. He talks about that which is from the beginning. And guys, with Western languages, this is just as true in the Greek as it is in English. You take someone that's a he or a she and refer to them as an it, things get awkward real quick. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you're not real careful, they get insulting real quick. And here's a guy that we know is not insulting Christ in any way. He's writing this letter to glorify Christ, and yet he keeps referring to that which was from the beginning instead of him who was from the beginning. Or it instead of Him being the life that was made manifest. As a matter of fact, it's so specifically about Christ being... Well, let me point out one other thing to you, and then, and then I'll move on from, from, from the technical stuff. When you look at the statement that is being made here in 1 John, it's not only that he's using the neuter pronoun, but he says that which was from the beginning. The word from there in the Greek indicates the separation of a person or object from another person or object that was at its origin. And so if you wanted to maybe kind of clear it up a little bit in your own mind, what he's saying is that which has come away from the beginning. There's movement and there's separation. It doesn't just mean in the Greek from as being the source, but the movement out and away from. And so what John is talking about in the first epistle of John is something that they, they saw and, and they heard and they touched. And that was there at the beginning but has moved forward from the beginning to its current position to be with them with their now. Oh, good grief. To be there with them now when this is being written at the end of the first century. It was at the beginning and it's moved forth from the beginning all the way even until today. And I would argue even until today. 2,000 years later. That's very different than what he said in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John... When he says, in the beginning was the Word. What we translate was is the Greek M.A. Which you guys may be familiar with this when we talked about it a lot when we were in the book of Romans. When Paul is often quoted as, as you know, when people say, well, we should do evil that good may abound, uh, and, or that grace may abound. And Paul says, not being. Not M.A. And so... Not only does he say, does he speak about the nature of Christ's being, but he speaks about it in the imperfect tense, which means it's still occurring. So in the Gospel of John, you have John, and this is why it's such a profound statement about Christ's deity. And why, if the reader is careful to understand what John is saying, by the time we get Jesus looking at the Pharisees going, man, before Abraham was, I am, we shouldn't be shocked to see that because we saw a similar temporal statement about Christ's deity in the very opening verse of the Gospel of John. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He, 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 he is literally saying, in the beginning, the Word bees. <laughs> He's there now. He is currently being in the beginning. And by extension of that concept, and in a millisecond after, and right now with me and you, and further down the road at the consummation of the age, and 
we are just temporal beings and He is an infinitely divine God. That's not what John's saying in the first epistle of John. He's talking about something that had its origins at the beginning and is moving along in time with men. It's moving along in time with Him so that it is from the beginning and He still has it here to be able to write and talk about it to you today. And it's still moving along in time. Because the it that He is speaking of is the message of the He that He saw that He touched with His own hands, the life made manifest that He beheld, that is now being made manifest in the Gospel. One of the things that I want you to understand comparing the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John is this. The Gospel of John is written with the express purpose of effecting belief in the people that hear it. That's why John wrote the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, that is its stated purpose. I mean, like, like we, th- this doesn't take like some kind of big exegetical, you know, quote twenty different verses to to show a theme. I mean, you just go to the Gospel of John, chapter twenty, in verse thirty, and as he's getting ready to wrap up, John says, "Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but because the but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is." the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is why John wrote the Gospel of John. It was written specifically to affect belief in people that previously weren't believers. The Gospel of John is the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. And that testimony alone is enough to produce new life in those that hear it. The first letter of John is not written primarily to affect belief in those that do not believe. It is written to affect sanctification, specifically in the realm of fellowship, for those who already believe. Man, John is writing the letter of 1 John to Christians. And instead of primarily being the testimony of Jesus Christ, it is the testimony of what Jesus Christ does in His people when He fulfills the word that He promised to them. John's writing the testimony about what Christ did in Him. The same thing that He's doing in others. Which wasn't emaying in the beginning before the foundations of the world. Man, there was a time when for John... The testimony of Christ in his life wasn't there, and then it was. But from the time that they have seen these things and bore witness to these things, since they've seen them and heard them and felt them, the message of the Gospel that brings to the person of the Gospel, from that time forward, it has moved in time along with them. Which is a really big deal when you're the last Apostle that saw it all with your own eyes, heard it all with your own ears, touched it all with your own hands, you know your days are short and you can see the demons sharpening their teeth and grinding their claws specifically to attack the personhood of Jesus Christ as it's being presented in the message. 
And John understands that, man, my day of sitting here being able to say, I heard it, I saw it, I touched it, is about to come to a close. And the thing that is going to continue to direct men to the life that has been made manifest is the message that was given by Him to us which has come from the beginning with us. The Gospel of John is a treatise on the necessary fidelity... I said the Gospel of John. The first epistle of John is a treatise on the necessary fidelity of the Gospel in the midst of the church if the church is going to stay the church. If people are going to continue to be brought to life by the life that's made manifest, then the message about the Word who was in the beginning with God has to come from the beginning with us in such a way that it is with the highest of fidelity communicated to the generations that didn't see with their own eyes, didn't hear with their own ears, and didn't touch with their own hands. And praise God that He has kept His Word through it because that's the way every single one of us were saved. So we were all saved. None of us had the, you know, that we weren't there tying our nets when Jesus goes, hey, come with me, son of thunder, make you a fisherman of men, let's go. But Lord, I've got a life and I've got a fishing. But yeah, your life just changed, buddy. Come on, let's go. We weren't there for that. None of us had the Damascus Road experience the Apostle Paul had. Man, I, I, I can count on just a couple of fingers the times that I've heard the Lord speak directly to me and they were incredibly profound. But I did not see Him tear the sky open and speak to me from heaven. What did I hear? I heard that which was from the beginning that these guys saw and that they heard and that they touched. That the life was made manifest and they saw it and they testified to it and proclaimed eternal life to us which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which had been seen and heard we proclaimed also to you. The He that was from the beginning becomes the It that has come from the beginning when the message that you weren't there to see is proclaimed to you about Him so that you may come to Him. You say, now wait a minute. Are you telling me the Gospel is a message that must be believed and not a person? Can I say yes and no? (laughs) And the Gospel is the message proclaimed about Him that gets you to Him. And Satan was willing to do anything he could, anything he could, in order to pervert it to the point that it would not be effectual in causing life to be manifest amongst men. The heresy that was coming, the the one that John is going to deal primarily with, Paul deals with the other one. The one that John was going to deal primarily with was the Gnostic heresy. And what the Gnostics basically said about Christ was that, um, that well, they said He was God. But they denied His humanity. 
On the flip side of the equation was a guy named Origen that butted heads a lot later on with Augustine. And Origen said the exact opposite. He said that Christ was fully man. But he denied his deity. And in doing so, both, though in different ways, failed the standard of Colossians chapter 2 in verses 6 through 10. I think you guys know it well, where Paul writes to the church there, and in verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Man, don't let them get into your heart and your head. And Paul and John are singing the same tune here. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. This is what we touched. This is what it was from the beginning even until now and must stay that way. Don't let them get in your head with philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Newsflash, Paul says, this is more than just about some, some bad dudes. There is very much a spiritual war involved here. And not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Man, here is the standard of the personhood of Christ in the most orthodox way that you can ever see it. And that's this, the fullness of deity dwelled in Him bodily. Or if you want to put it, you know, kind of the old cliche, that's great. Fully God, fully man. Because that's exactly what He was. And you go, man, and I've actually, um, some years ago, some years ago, talking on this subject out at Bible study one night, um, out of First Peter, Dan was in First Peter, and I get called to the duty hut, and uh, he says, "Hey, what are you doing tonight?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, you know, it's Wednesday night. I think we were off here at Mount Zion. We didn't have, uh, uh, we didn't uh, have any small groups going on at the time." And, and uh, Dan says, "Oh, we're in First uh, Peter uh, out at Bible study. It's been a long time since you've been around. Maybe you ought to come knocking around sometime." And I was like, "Yeah, maybe so. How about tonight?" Okay, Dan, anything in particular? No, just bring a Bible. Great. Right? I had some, and this was the subject. And, and, and I had a guy ask me, he said, he said, okay, you're obviously very passionate about this. And he said, I've been reading a lot of stuff because I don't understand what I'm reading. I've been reading a lot of stuff. And it seems like the people that write on this subject are very passionate in the defense that Christ was fully God and fully man. And he said, I can understand completely why you would be passionate in the defense that he was fully God. And the reason that we would probably think that today is because um, the, the, the most common heretical failure of our day today is that, well, Christ was a good teacher. Right? He was a great rabbi. He, he made a lot of good points, but you know, his followers later, they kind of messed up a bunch of the stuff he said. And It's funny that John's arguing, don't mess it up. Right? It has to have fidelity from the beginning. But, but, but you know, he was just a good teacher. And, and it seems outrageous to the modern Western mind to say, no, he was the ancient of days. He's, he's God. But the reality was, at this point in time, in this day and time, it was a much more socially acceptable jump to say, hey, listen, the guy was God 
than to say he was just a man. They didn't have any issue with supernatural spirituality as we've been talking about on Sunday morning. It was all around them. I mean, you couldn't walk through one of these Roman cities without there just being one temple after the other, after the other, after the other. Everybody claiming to be deity. And, and you know, it's kind of like politicians. you got business people. They're, they're spreading it around to all the temples. They want to be in everybody's favor. Say, so why, why so passionate? Because... Because of what Christ came to do and the way the life was made manifest, the life was made manifest to us in His incarnation, but then it was given to us so that that life was manifest in us and we became the children of God through the shedding of His blood in propitiation. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, where we've been over the last couple of weeks in the morning, I'm just going to touch on here one more time tonight, and I think we'll leave it alone for a while. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he said Jesus had to be made in every way like you and me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. He had to. Okay. There's only one reason that God ever has to do anything. And that's because that's the purpose of His character. And so I am going to do, I am going to to have this thing. Therefore, I have to do the things to get it. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author of Hebrews is, of course, going to continue to develop this idea all the way through chapter 8, 9, and 10, where he says, look, guys, he's not just the priest. He's also the sacrifice. He's not the one just offering the propitiation. He is the propitiation. Come on, you didn't think that the, the, that the offering of the bloods of goats and bulls and calves was ever going to satisfy God for the lifeblood of a man, it was going to take His blood. And so by His blood, He entered once for all into the perfect tent that is, that is in heaven, not the one on earth, to purchase, purchase your life and mine. Satan knows how it works, and he knows that if he can pervert the gospel so that what people have at any given time is not that same one that came all the way from the beginning from the apostles. That if he can pervert it and he can undermine it and he doesn't care which one it is, with the Gnostics it was will deny he's human. With Origen it was it's will deny he's flesh. But either way, if he's not the right currency then you have effectively undermined the ability of the gospel to purchase the souls of men. And in doing so, you have produced something that is called the gospel that is not the gospel. And that's exactly what he wants. And John is passionate that it doesn't happen. And it's not, it's not simply a doctrinal thing. As Toby used to do, the doctrine drives doxology. It's not just a doctrinal thing. Oh, it's a doctrinal thing. And it's a big doctrinal thing. But it has everything to do 
with the fellowship that we enjoy with the Father and the Son and by extension with each other. It's what John says. He's like, look guys, this is how we got here. Because this Word came forth from the beginning, this one that the apostles heard and saw and touched, this one, the life was made manifest in this Word, not, not another one, but this Word is effectual to bring you to Him who is the life so that your fellowship is no longer with darkness but is now with the Father and His Son, which is a just terrific definition of what salvation is. This is it. It's got to be guarded. It's got to be protected. And he says something amazing. And I'm, we're done. He says, we write this so that our joy is complete. Which was the same motivation that Jesus had when He said it to them. And it was the same desire that Christ had not only for them, but according to John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, those who would believe through what they said, this very message that John is so adamant must be protected. That's where we'll pick up next week. Verse 5.